If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. My name is Ed, and this is Becky. Becky was uh, married to one of our elders and a good friend here at Gateway. And this past March, February, this past March, her husband Tom passed away from cancer. So this has been a tough year, Becky, and this was the first holiday without Tom. So I decided that I would punish her and ask her to come this morning to tell us what she's thankful for. So, Becky? Okay, so I told him I had to write it down. <laughs> for the last couple of Januaries, I've kind of picked a word to focus on each year. In 2017, my word was joy. We started the year thinking Tom was cancer-free following his surgery that October, but eight months later, we were given the news that his cancer had spread and that he had less than a 2% chance of survival past two years. Tom started aggressive treatment of chemo, radiation, and immunotherapy. He continued to work, serve as an elder, small group leader, lay counselor, and lead as normal of a life as possible. Even in the midst of our pain and disappointment, we found lots of joy that year. In January of this year, 2018, I chose the word hope. By this time, Tom's cancer was continuing to spread and nothing seemed to be working. Our constant prayer was for a miracle, for complete, unexplainable healing, which of course we would be able to explain because our hope was in the power of Jesus Christ, not modern medicine. Well, Pastor Ed has asked me to come and share what I'm thankful for this year, 2018. But when you say that, you're really joyful, right? <laughs> that was last year. <laughs> now, I know he likes people to be brief so as not to steal his thunder. So I will try to be, <laughs> but it was really hard to list it out. It would take a lot of your time. I'm so very thankful for the 83 days I got to spend with Tom on what would have been our, 80, our 83rd, <laughs> our 33rd year of marriage. Each day of our life is a gift, and we should unwrap it as such. I'm so thankful for our two amazing kids and the way that they leaned into and loved their dad, even to the point of having very difficult conversations that most of us would want to avoid. But because of their bravery, I know they will never regret. I'm so thankful to Gateway, which is way more than just our church home, but our very real family. In just the past year, we have had folks from Gateway do yard work, plumbing repairs, meals and more meals. Folks drove Tom to some of his appointments and sat with him during treatments. Others came and worked from our home while he slept just to keep him company. Money was collected and given to us in shocking amounts. I had to become his social secretary because so many of you wanted to come and visit, which meant the world to him. We'd get constant texts and calls just letting us know that we were being prayed for. Our small group has been such a blessing to me and my family. I can't even begin to list the ways that they have served and loved on us. And perhaps the biggest blessing from Gateway came in the form of praise and worship at our home on Sunday evenings. When Tom got to the point that he couldn't attend church anymore, church came to him. Nothing lifted his spirits more than those three Sundays when Ed and Jordan came with their guitars and sometimes up to 50 friends, neighbors, and our church family gathered round to lift God's name on high. That was literal heaven on earth for us, and I will forever be grateful for that gift. I could go on, but suffice it to say, I have been surrounded and sustained by your prayers, love, and support, for which I am so very grateful. I mentioned earlier that my word for this year is hope, and I am most thankful for the hope we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Because of this, I know exactly where Tom is and who he is with. Our prayers for his complete healing were answered, just not in my selfish way. God called Tom home. I know he has arrived at the ultimate prayer and praise, and I couldn't be more thankful. So God is good. All the time. I appreciate you mentioning uh, prayer and praise time, Becky. Today we're going to be talking about worship. And we're looking at a classic text, an Old Testament text. Not many passages get their own name, but this one does. It's, it's Psalm 95, and it is in worship settings called the Venite, which is Latin for come. So we're going to be looking at the Venite this morning, and it's, it's a classic text not only because it's beautiful, but it lays out for us a picture of what worship is and how to do it. So we're going to read Psalm 95 and talk about it this morning. And I've asked Becky, if she would, to lead us in a responsive reading of Psalm 95. It's often read responsively in Christian settings. We're going to do so this morning. She will read the uh, dark print, and we will read the light print together. This is Psalm 95, the Venite, and this is going to be our text for today. We're going to talk about worship. So let's go old school, stand out of reverence for God's word, and let's look at Psalm 95 together. And Becky will lead us and read the dark print. We will read the light print together. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. We will come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. We will worship and bow down. We will kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Pause there for a second. The bottom part, the part that we just read, that has been for our purposes, been written in sort of first-person language, we will. But in the original context, some of you may know this, in the original context, that's the second invitation. That literally says, come, let us worship and bow down. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at the day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. And here's our part. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said... Father, we pray that you would speak to us today. We hear your voice. We've heard it already. We pray that you would help us soften our hearts and teach us how to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, just as opening a teaser, how do you handle the difficulties of life? Of course, you write everybody that you know and ask them for prayer, and Becky did. But the Psalms make it clear, not only do we offer petition prayer, you know, God help me, but we worship. Worship is part of the mechanism for handling the difficulties of life. So this passage is going to tell us three things. What is worship? How do we do it? And why should we worship? 
Now, I'm going to ask you, we're going to spend so much time just kind of diving into this text. I'd love for you to look along with me. It just says we go through it so you can see it for yourself. If you have a Bible, Psalms is in the middle of the Bible. Go to Psalm 95. Okay, first, what is worship? I like the definition Chris Collins gave on the website Verge. He said this, biblical worship is whole life response, head, heart, and will to God, recognizing who God is and what he's done. We're going to do that together. And when we say head, heart, and will, we're going to be obnoxious. And I want you to go head, heart, and will. This represents us being active about it. So let's read this together, head, heart, and will, remember. Let's go. Biblical worship is the whole life response, head, heart, and will to God, recognizing who God is and what he's done. This is a great definition of biblical worship and a great summary of Psalm 95. With just a quick reading of this psalm, you can see that it's organized around three challenges, intentionally so, which appeal to our emotions and our will and our minds. So let's take those one at a time. First of all, the psalmist makes an unabashed appeal to our emotions. By the way, we're going to spend the most time on this one point than anything else in our conversation today because I think this is important for us suburban Americans. Verse 1 says, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving. Did you get that? Sing for joy, shout aloud, come before him with thanksgiving. Woohoo! Yay, God! For the psalmist, this is the starting point of worship. It doesn't always have to be this way. The psalmist also speaks of silence and tears. But clearly, joyful exuberance is to be part of our worship diet. And I think for most of us Northern Virginians, there's a strange relationship between our emotions and worship. This is funny, really. Because this is the part of worship that makes the most sense to those people who are outside of faith. They get this. But often it's the most difficult for us suburbanites. Of course, this is not universally true, but it's true for many of us. Many of us are overly educated. In other words, we spent years developing our skills within a structure that was highly cerebral. By the time the sausage was fully assembled, we were engineers or project managers or consultants. We were built to analyze and organize. We were not built to shout aloud with joy. And there were very few influences in our lives that encouraged us to whoop and holler and give thanks. And yet, for the psalmist, this is a baseline part of worship. Now, some of this is not bad, certainly, and it's not wrong. It's just the reality of who we are. It's funny, this cultural current is so strong that even those of you who come from other cultures where worship is often much more exuberant, You kind of settle into suburbania, don't you? Well, I said it's not bad, and it's not, because joy looks different on different people, and shouting aloud is more under control for some people than it is for others, and that's not a bad thing. In that vein, let me offer a word to those of us who want our worship to be more exuberant, and I know there are some closet Pentecostals here who who are looking for that. Mostly, I agree with you, but let me say a word to you. We need to be more exuberant. But we need to move emotionally, I would say, from a three to a six. We don't need to move from a three to a nine. A nine would be terrifying to most suburban Americans. And someone is thinking, well, let's terrify them, Ed. But I don't think so. It's not our goal to terrify people. In certain ways, God is terrifying enough by himself without us adding anything to it. By the way, this is why our worship leaders don't do more to exhort you and I to exuberance. Raise your hands out there, everybody. We don't do much of that at Gateway. In some church settings, you hear that a lot, but we don't do that much here. 
we're trying very hard to hit a God-honoring balance between real, honest worship that's consistent with who we are and real worship that is God-honoring and biblical. We realize that some of you came from liturgical Presbyterian settings or Catholic settings, and even what we do blows you away. So, you know, we're just trying to get from a three to a six. But we do need to move from a three to a six, by the way, Gateway. Of course, that means that we sometimes end up with awkward moments here on Sunday morning, don't we? When there are 250 of us in here and three of us are trying to clap. You know, it's a little awkward. Or the song ends and nine people are, are clapping and the rest of us think, what are those weirdos doing? But we're willing to have awkward moments so that we get honest moments. I'm going to say that again. I like it. We got a whoop already. We're willing to have awkward moments so that we get honest moments. Having said all of that, we need to acknowledge that we should do more to move our emotional engagement from a three to a six. Let's sing for joy. Let's shout aloud with thanksgiving. We have to be engaged emotionally. The psalmist tells us this is part of worship. So how do we do it? What's the key? Well, I think the key is real and proper recognition. Remember our definition. Biblical worship is the whole life response, head, heart, and will to God, recognizing who God is and what he's done. I love an illustration I heard from another pastor about this. He was imagining a woman who has a very old brooch, just a beautiful piece of jewelry in her jewelry box and gathering dust. She hardly ever wears it. She decides that she's cleaning out her jewelry box one day. She decides she wants to have the brooch appraised. See, you know, it came from her grandmother, let's say, or she, she thinks she got it from her grandmother. So she takes it to a jeweler. Jeweler puts it down on the table, takes out his little, I don't know what you call that thing, but the little thing, you know, that they look at and they look in the jewelry and he's stunned. And he realizes the cut and the clarity and the, the make of the, the piece of jewelry, it blows him away. Not only is it the most valuable piece of jewelry anywhere in the store, it's probably worth more than all of the other jewelry in the store added together. All of a sudden, the entire complexion of the room changes. This jeweler's approach to the brooch and to the woman who brought it in changes completely. And for the woman... Everything changes. Now, all of a sudden, she realizes she brought the brooch in like this and threw it out on the table. Now, she needs a case to carry it home in. She's got to call her insurer to make sure that she reorients her life around this, in a minor degree, but she really does. They buy a display case so they can put it on the mantle to show the brooch that is the most valuable thing in their home. Most people have God the way that woman had the brooch, casually unknowingly. One of the reasons our emotions are not engaged is because there's very little active recognition of who God is and what he's done. We need to change that. The second appeal starts in verse 6. It says, come let us worship and bow down. Obviously, this is a direct challenge to our will. Let's bow down before God. Let's surrender ourselves to God. This is a rebuke by the way, to the sorry side of ourselves whenever we're saying to ourselves, oh, I'm just not feeling it today. To the psalmist, he doesn't say, oh, okay, well, sometimes I'm not feeling it either. Let's just skip it. No, the psalmist says, well, come on, let's bow down and worship. Let's kneel before him. Let's offer him homage. Let's surrender to him. Even if you can't whoop and holler today, you can bow down. 
finally, verse 10, gives us the last stanza and the final appeal. The psalmist says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is a strong, direct call to move toward God with our minds and our thoughts. In fact, I think he goes negative here, do not harden your heart, because he wants to strengthen the challenge. It comes out stronger, doesn't it, than, than if he said, hey, put your mind on God, listen for his voice. No, do not harden your hearts. You may remember a couple weeks ago we said that when the Bible uses the word heart, it really means whole person or, or what's most essential to us. There are rare examples when the Bible talks about the heart as a synonym for our emotions, the way we use it in English. But far more often, biblical authors use heart as a close synonym for our values or our thinking and our reasoning. And that's the way he's using it here. And you should know the word meribah is Hebrew for quarreling, and the word Massah is Hebrew for testing. So the psalmist is referencing an Old Testament account of one of the several times that the Israelites complained against Moses and against God for dragging them out of Egypt and into the desert. Admittedly, they were facing a very difficult time. Water supplies were dangerously low. They didn't know the plan. They didn't know where they were going or how long it would take. And in a vacuum of information, rumors began swirling. Throats were parched. Why are we here, Moses? Why would you drag us out here only to die? What is God doing? Why us? Why here? It wasn't so bad in Egypt after all. Really? It wasn't so bad in Egypt. Eventually, God miraculously provided water for them. And Moses probably in a fit of frustration, called that place Massah Mirabah, quarreling troublesome. Don't be like that, the psalmist challenges. Today, if you hear his voice, if it registers with you, do not harden your heart against it. I mean, listen for him. Seriously, listen. Do not allow your thoughts to drift toward grumbling, no matter what's going on. Do not allow distance to creep in between you and your God. Do not harden your hearts, but keep them soft, Toward God. This is something you can do. For some of you, this is the real challenge for worship today. Your throat is parched, there's no real map forward, and you are beginning to grumble. You need to know, evidently, this is a really big deal to God. In fact, the psalmist goes epically dark here at the end of this psalm about this very thing. In effect, the psalmist says that when you allow yourself to go this direction long enough to go toward grumbling and complaining, to slide toward a hard heart, when you allow yourself to go that direction long enough, well, God remembers it and he punishes it. Don't do this. You can stop it. Grab hold of your thoughts and move them toward God. So, again, in summary, biblical worship is the whole life response, head, heart, will, to God recognizing who God is and what he's done. We've already answered the second question, haven't we? Why do we worship? Why do we worship? Why do we do this thing? Remember the psalmist has challenged us to engage our emotions, our will, and our minds. And in each case, it comes in response to who God is and what he does. In each case, the psalmist is giving us the why. Look back at the first stanza. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's whoop and holler, he says, because the Lord is a great God. And look at this, and a great king above all gods. Don't miss that. He owns everything. He made everything. It's his. We engage emotionally because he's like no other God, right? He's a great king above all gods. 
This is one of those don't miss this points right here. Let's not allow ourselves the thought. Even if you're standing on the outside of faith looking in, even if you're here because Sunday after Thanksgiving and you couldn't avoid it, your family drug you here. Even if you're standing on the outside looking in, let's not allow ourselves the thought that worship is that weird thing that certain emotionally charged Christians do. Don't allow yourself that kind of thinking because it's not true and it's lazy. Let me explain. Let's back up from, for a second from our, the definition we gave of worship and let's give a more general definition. In its broadest sense, worship means to ascribe ultimate meaning and value to something. In fact, the word worship comes from the old English word worship, to ascribe ultimate value and meaning to something. It's the act of saying, this is extremely highly valuable to me. I'm going to orient my life around this, whatever this is. That's worship. All of us worship. All of us worship. We all bow down before those things that have ultimate value for us. We all engage our emotions in those things and around those things which animate us and excite us. If I announced this morning that the Lottery Commission had just granted a special lottery winning to everybody attending Gateway today, and each of us is going to receive $5 million, there'd be some serious worship going on in here. We worship what we value above all else. I love Tim Keller's point about this. He says, God-honoring worship, listen to this, isn't dredging up something that we don't have or something that we don't feel. God-honoring worship is transferring what we already do to God. So first of all, our emotions are engaged toward God because he's the great God above all gods. Secondly, our wills are engaged. We bow down because he cares for us, the psalmist supplies. Look at verse 7. There's the scripture. He's, he's like a shepherd does. He takes care of us. He tends us. We're in his pasture. So let's surrender because, listen, a sheep out by herself is just not going to fare well. But under the care of a loving, tender, sovereign shepherd, that same sheep is going to thrive. So we bow down before him because he cares for us, and he's a loving, tender, sovereign shepherd. And finally, the psalmist challenges us to engage our minds in worshiping God. In other words, let's choose to remember what God has done and who he is, even in tough times, maybe especially in tough times. Let's resist the temptation to grumble and complain and distance ourselves from him because it will not go well for us if we pursue this direction. We will simply never experience the rest that God has for us. So we worship in somebody because of who God is and what he's done. And this is why worship is a remedy during tough times. And it's why worship is freeing. Remember, whatever we worship, that's what controls us. That's what we orient our lives around. Whatever we give the place of ultimate value in our lives, that's what we orient around. I want to use a dramatic example to demonstrate the power of this this morning if I can Think of the stories that we've all been reading over the last five years that highlight the opioid epidemic in America. Housewives, students, doctors, and judges. Basically, people from every stripe have surrendered their lives and their families and their careers to opioid addiction. Either through the slow attrition of their will or through a series of terrible circumstances or, or through a long period of bad choices or all of the above, 
they have said, I'm going all in with opioids. They make my pain go away. They help me forget. They make me feel a delicious ease. Eventually, they recognize the lie. They see the destruction, but they can't stop. Make no mistake, they are worshiping. They are orienting their lives around opioids. And in their worship, they have surrendered full control. We always do. Whether it's money or applause or sex or opioids, we surrender control to what we worship. So think about how freeing it would be if the worship of opioids could be completely replaced by the worship of Jesus in their lives. The awful horror would be replaced with the beauty of the great God. The terrible dictator would be replaced by a loving shepherd. The distance and emptiness would be replaced by a fullness and a nearness. Here's what we have to face. We all surrender to something. So let's choose to worship God because through that act, we are finally surrendering to one who fully deserves our surrender and who will care for us through our surrender. I'm going to say that again. Let's choose to worship God because through that act, we are finally surrendering to one who, will, who fully deserves our surrender and who will care for us through our surrender. Care for us. Not make everything okay, but care for us. Finally, how do we worship? Especially since it's so critically important to getting free, how do we worship? How do we do it well? We're going to cover the same territory again to make sure we've got it. Number one, the first part of the answer is, as we've suggested, we just do it. If we're going to worship well, we have to engage with our whole selves. Mind, heart, will. We just do it. You come here, look, you can come here, and I'm so glad you came. Thank, welcome. Welcome to Gateway. If this is your first time, special welcome to you. You can come here, for instance, on a Sunday morning, and in effect, you can sit back with your arms folded and observe. You can do that, but you cannot do that and worship. At a bare minimum, if you're going to worship, you have to enter in. Again, here's what I mean. You have to arouse yourself emotionally. You have to choose to move the needle from a three to a six. You have to occasionally put your Pentecostal on. You have to stir that suburban soul into some whooping and hollering once in a while. He said, you have to surrender your will. You have to choose him. And thirdly, you have to direct your thoughts toward him. You have to listen for his voice. You have to allow the wonder of the value of the brooch to fall on you. You have to listen to the words of the songs as we sing them. Listen to the prayers. Listen to the message. Listen for the stirring in your own heart and mind and then follow that stirring. As a first step into worship, if we're going to worship well, we have to engage with our whole selves. And all God's people said, they said it like suburbanites, but they said it. Secondly, let me say a special word about the mental part of this, because it's funny, I'm, I'm talking a lot today about the emotional engagement, that's not all it is, it's the whole person, but I'm talking about the emotional engagement in a way that's very cerebral, aren't I? That suits us suburban Northern Virginians, but I want to say a special word about the mental part. Now, this is something overeducated and highly trained Northern Virginians should be good at. So again, it's not like we're ordered to worship, but given no reason. At each step of the way, the psalmist tells us why. So if we're going to worship well, we have to remember the why. 
We have to keep this constantly in mind. Our God is a great God. Our God is a caring God. And our God will not tolerate any small-minded complaining and distancing. And he offers us freedom and release. He offers an alternative to our overstressed, frenetic lives. He offers us rest. Even in the most trying circumstances, he offers us rest. Let's say a word about that. That reference at the end of the psalm, it's kind of an odd thing for the psalmist to go so dark at the end of the psalm, right? We need to say a word about it. It's interesting that the New Testament author of the book of Hebrews uses the end of this psalm to make a point about Jesus. You have to follow this. Some of you know this passage from the book of Hebrews. The author quotes the end of this psalm, and he makes a fascinating point out of the psalm. He says this. He uses the word today. And the psalmist says, today, if you hear his voice. Essentially, what the author of Hebrews says is that the psalmist would not have made that a present tense charge, and he wouldn't have talked about their inability to enter rest today if Joshua had finished the job. So let me explain a quick historical survey here. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, but it was Joshua who led them into the quote-unquote rest of the promised land. That happened probably 400 years before this psalm was written. They entered into the rest of the promised land. And yet the psalmist could still talk about a rest that was not available to them if their thoughts were not aligned with worship. There was still a rest that was awaiting them. The Hebrews author seizes on this point and he recognizes that the full rest of God has finally been made available to us in Jesus. We don't have to work at our lives in the same way anymore. We don't have to make it happen. We don't have to worry and try to control everything. We don't even have to try to be good. God has taken care of all of that in Jesus. Religion says, here's what I need to do to please God and the people around me. But the gospel says, here's what God has done for me in Jesus and it's all I need. I mean, that's both a motivation for worship and it's a byproduct of a life of worship. It motivates us as we do the mental work of keeping it in our minds. That's how we orient our lives. But the rest he speaks of, the rest is also, it's, it's going to be a byproduct of a life of worship. We recognize who he is and engage with him with head, heart, and will, and we enter his rest. One more note before we quit. A third element to doing worship well is easy to miss in this psalm, but it's important. It's community. Did you notice that all of the challenges in this psalm are corporate? In fact, all of the verbs in the psalm are corporate. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us not harden our hearts. We need one another to do this well. Now, it's absolutely critical that you and I are engaging ourselves in worship individually. And if you do not have that practice in your life, I strongly encourage it. I'm trying to do that every morning this year as, as many of us read through the New Testament together. But it's equally important, and maybe more so, that we engage together. First of all, we need the support. I'm too fragile, and I'm, I'm too much of a doubter, honestly. My thoughts don't stay focused, and they drift toward complaint without your reminders. And I cannot arouse my emotions sufficiently or with any regularity without your help. We need the support of community. 
We also need the wisdom of community. We need the wisdom that we get from one another. I want you to listen to this rich prayer that the Apostle Paul offers in Ephesians chapter 3. Some of you have read this before. So look at this. This is in the middle of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and he writes out a prayer for them. And, and I want you to especially, there's one phrase in this that just hits you like a cannonball. It's awesome. So Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. That's the recognizing part, that we get it. That you may have strength to comprehend. Look at this next phrase. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It is as if we cannot get the love of God. It's just too big. It's too deep. It's too broad. We can't get it unless we get it together. I pray that you'll comprehend with all the saints the height and depth and breadth of the love of God and you'll get it and then you'll fall on your knees with me and we'll worship together and the result of that is you will enter the rest that I made reference to. To worship well, we have to join a worshiping community. That's why we talk so much here at Gateway about connecting. To worship well, you have to enter in and engage with others who are trying to worship well. We need the support we need the wisdom. Okay, let's do a little bit of lab work. I want you to introduce yourself to the person who's sitting next to you and make sure that you know who you're beside and just say, hey, my name is Ed, except you use your name. Hey, my name is Ed, and uh, we're going to worship well. Go. All right, let's try this. Some of you did not know this song, but you've heard it now. Stay in your seats for a second, and uh, let's just get the rhythm and the words. So we'll go through this so that we know that we've got it. Tee us up. We will sing, 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 and make music with the heavens, because it's what they're doing. We'll sing, 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 grateful that you hear us, when we shout your praise, somebody there, three or four of you, it's not going to embarrass any of the rest of us suburbanites, three or four of you are going to go, woo! When we shout your praise, lift high the name of Jesus. Let's try it with mellow this time. Here we go, choir, when we sing. We will sing, 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 and make music with the heaven. We will sing, sing, sing. Good. Somebody gave us a little whoop. We're going to do more of that in just a second. But this time, stay seated. This time, let's try it. I know that Northern Virginians are sometimes rhythmically challenged. We're going to clap together. Look, even if you're Catholic, you can do this. And if you're, you know, if you're super Pentecostal, calm down a little bit. We're not trying to get to nine. Uh, let's just do a little bit of clapping. Here we go.
All right, let's stand. Now, one of the postures for worship is hand raising. Now, it's, it's awkward for some of us, I know. So if you're, you know, if, if you're a super suburbanite and you were raised in a Lutheran church and you can't even barely figure out what this is, then just give us one of these. But, and this is great, that's awesome, seriously. But if you're all in, we'll do one of these. And we're just gonna lift our hands through this one and just try it. Let's go through this chorus one time. Sing, sing, sing. Here we go, we will sing.
grateful that you hear us when we shout your praise. Live high the name of Jesus. Have a great week. God loves you. Go in peace, everyone.